it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. I'm Dave Ahern, and I have with me Andrew Sather, my other co-host. Today, we have a special guest today, all the way from middle New York. We have Alan with us today. Alan, by the way, is a big Patriots fan. Boo. But we're we're, (laughs) going to have some fun talking to him about investing today. He has some great questions for us, and we're going to go ahead and chat a little bit about that. So without any further ado, Alan, why don't you go ahead and ask our first question? Okay. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Um, So I've just started investing about two weeks ago. You know, got get started listening to your podcast, read Andrew's ebook, so I got a little bit learned before I just jumped into it. And I noticed that you guys teach the value investing strategy, and I fully bought into it. Um, seems like a great way uh, to make decisions on the market and uh, invest in a company. So you guys talk a lot about the value investing strategy. I was wondering if there are other investing strategies and maybe what the advantages and disadvantages are of those other strategies. That's a great question. I can't remember if I mentioned on the on the podcast before, but when I started out getting into the world of it, I had been exposed to, I guess, a certain type of value investing. Peter Lynch was the first book I read, and his it's more of like a general value investing, the gritty, but just the basic buy low kind of general advice. A lot of different books. Peter Lynch has some approaches that takes that a step further, but that was kind of the general thing that brought my mind into it. Uh, got into The Intelligent Investor, written by Benjamin Graham, and that's what really exposed me to value investing. And even though, firstly, I feel like a strategy should make sense intuitively, and either the logic is there or it isn't, I kind of apply that to a lot of different things. I feel if you're an intuitive, intelligent person, you can base your own experiences, you can kind of use some outside, the make a little bit of a thought experiment and try to see if what's being presented to you is actually legitimate. So I felt value investing right away was for me, but I also am the type of person who wants to collect data around what other options are available. Kind of see, number one, if I'm going to label myself as a value investor, what are my competitors doing so that I can understand where I can get an edge? And on top of that, maybe pull things that other guys are successful with and implement that into my own strategy. So one of those big things that Dave and I both love to preach is the trailing stop. And that's actually something that's not really talked about a lot in value investing. And it's a technique we borrow from technical analysis, more specifically trend following. Trend following is a strategy that is based on, instead of company financials, it looks at a company stock price and the movement of that stock price. And from there develops a system to try to maximize the profit gain on that stock price as it rises, as there's optimism, as the bulls are 
cheering up the stock as maybe a craze happens and everybody just jumps in. And what can happen with a strategy like that is naturally they can get in a lot of positions where the company is doing well and that's why the stock price is going up. So a strategy like trend following gets a, can attribute a lot of its success to the same reasons that a strategy like value investing is attributing its success. And it's really down to the business fundamentals. The only difference is that obviously the trend followers are not focused on the fundamentals. And so there's a bit of a disconnect there. Of course, I could talk about trend following all day long. It's a, I think it's a, a great alternative, but from a basic principle, I don't know, maybe foundational principle, the big difference is because they look at stocks as more of numbers on the screen. And I don't think there are long-term trend followers and a lot of the successful ones do use that. If you are interested in trend following or technical analysis at all for that trading, that, those kinds of things, I've talked about before how I read a book called Market Wizard where they interviewed very, a big group of successful traders, guys guys out on the floor, guys who are able to live really easy going lives nowadays because they were able to really turn small amounts of capital into big ones. Similar to the way the value investors have done, I think uh, a lot of the value investors You'll see them more concentrated, fun man, that type of deal, Warren Buffett kind of thing. Um, of course, it could go either way. And traders and using value investing, you see fund managers using technicals. It's it's it, it, it's all integrated. There. So uh, even though a lot of successful trend followers have used long term, in I think from a very basic level, they're not looking for a stock or a company to ride out. They're gonna attach a trailing stop, ride it till it hits the top and then before before any significant. So, and again, we've talked about in the past how I, I personally like to balance the buy and hold with the trailing stop and there's certain positions I would prefer to hold forever, hold through a bear market. There's other positions I would prefer to just attach a trailing stop to. A trend follower is going to lean or if not exclusively be a investor who is attaching a trailing stop at all times and you know any sort of bear market hits they'll probably be liquidating their position as a function of their strategy and because they focus so much on the stock price they're not looking at things like how expensive is the company is this company going to be doing well in 10 years the even if it may be considered long term from a descriptive level it's not long-term like an, a value investor would be or even a dividend investor who's looking at a growing dividend over decades and, and just looking to compound in that way it's a it's a might be a subtle difference for somebody who's not really an expert on either strategy but it's a big difference and i mean like i said i could talk about some other intricate differences all day long but that's a fundamental one that makes me say okay it's not to say that trend falling wouldn't work but I would prefer to have a large portion of my portfolio that I don't have to touch that's going to give me very high yields on costs and that are in businesses that I'm confident will not only continue for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, maybe even my grandchildren someday will be having that business in their world and it will still grow, still continue to pay out dividends. And that's really the kind of stocks that I'm looking to buy in contrast to the trend following approach and of course i think we should go over a couple other strategies that are out there um, dave do you have one on the top of your mind that you talk about there's a couple that kind of spring to mind that i that i would one that i could talk a little bit about the other one honestly i don't know that much about uh the the one i'm thinking about is momentum investing i've i've heard the guys on the investors podcast preston and stig talk a little bit about this in the past uh, momentum investing is a system of buying stocks or other securities that have had high returns over the past 3 to 12 months and selling those that have had poor returns over the same period of time. So they basically look at a group of stocks that they're going to buy, and over a 3 to 12-month period, any that are going up, they're going to buy. Any that are doing poorly, they're going to sell. And that's kind of, you know, it's a little bit like trend following. But I think with momentum investing, they do a little more fundamental analysis. They'll look at the the prices of the stock. They'll look at you know the value of the companies as well. Whereas like with Andrew is talking about with trend following, it's it's just all about the number on the screen. You know, if it goes up, you're following. If it goes down, you're getting out. And so momentum investing is a little bit. Um, there's a little bit of science to it as well. 
but it's going to be it's similar to value investing a little bit and there are certain aspects of it i think that it could be beneficial to it as well i think the reason why that you know i became a value investor was a lot along the same lines as Andrew. It just seemed to fit for me. It just seemed to make sense for my personality. I'm a conservative guy by nature. And so to be dealing with a lot of volatility when I'm buying stocks, it's already kind of a nerve-wracking enough endeavor as it is. So for me, I'm looking for something that's going to be a little safer, I guess. You know, we've talked a lot about margin of safety in the past, and Andrew and I are both big fans of the safety part of that equation. And I think that's why value investing appeals to me. I'm also a numbers guy. I like looking at numbers and analyzing things and figuring out why it's worth what it is. And, you know, intrinsic value is a thing, a big thing for me. And I guess along those lines, you know, there are a myriad of different kinds of investing styles. You can go even in the value investing world, there's, you know, dividends and there's dividend growth investors and there's growth investors. And there's just, there's so many different ways. And I think the most important part about all this is finding a style that works for you. Andrew and I are big advocates of value investing. We see the benefits of it and we see the effects that it can have on your portfolio. And it's a great way to make money for your future. And, you know, it's a patient strategy and it's something that requires you know long-term view and it's not something you're going to buy in and out of very quickly but it is something that you know you can use to make a lot of money over a, a period of time and you know there are other strategies of course and i think the great ones look at a strategy and then they will adapt to it and i'm not comparing myself to warren buffett by any stretch of the imagination but one of the things that i admire about him is that he was very much grounded in Benjamin Graham and the, the intelligent investor and security analysis and those books really formed his you know basis but he's learned to adapt through the years by his association with Charlie Munger and he's he's changed his approach as he's gone along and you know Andrew you know adapting some of the things that he learned you know that trend following can use has been of benefit to him and it's been benefit to me and others and i think those are great things as well so you know i know i've gotten a little off track on the momentum investing but i don't honestly know a whole lot about it value investing is my thing and that's really what i focus on i really honestly haven't paid as much attention to the other ones because they don't really seem to fit my personality so i guess that's my thought on the momentum investing i don't know if any if there's any other ones you wanted to chat about andrew so it was love at first pretty much Good. That's, that's good. You're a committed man. <laughs> I am. So another resource I would really recommend if what else, which we've discussed this book in the past, a random walk down wall. Obviously, Dave and I don't agree with the conclusion of it, but it does present a good picture of what other investors, what their mindset is and what kind of things they try to do, try to beat them. So we talked about trend following, talked about momentum. I have seen people who have been successful with momentum and value. Um, it, it's it's kind of like a niche thing. I, I believe it can be successful, but again, depends on how much you believe in momentum. And so what Mal Kiel, the author of Random Walk Down Wall Street, presented was his idea that prices are completely random to the point where if a stock has gained in one day, there's a just a 50-50 chance it'll either next day. There's no correlation. So with that argument, he argues that there's no reason why momentum strategy would outperform and so that's not something that we can just cover in a couple minutes so i'm just going to skip over that if the whole random prices thing is is kind of interesting to you i would definitely recommend checking out the episode we did on the efficient market hypothesis so some of the other strategies that malkiel talked about that investors have used in the Things like the dogs of the which is a strategy where investors would look the Dow Jones and pick the stocks with the highest dividend. Um, I believe it was something that was done like once a year. I can't remember exactly. Obviously, I wasn't. I'm not a proponent of it. I I just understood the basic concept of it. If they're either holding that forever or rebalance every year, it, it's. It had, it's had some success initially. It was like early 90s when they first really started popularized by a dude and started to gain momentum in the sense that people started to follow that kind of a strategy. A big problem with it is obviously you're constricting yourself to the Dow and the Dow is selected 
by its own exclusive club that nobody talks about and nobody really knows what the criteria is that for that. So when you constrict yourself to such a small group of stocks, even if you select the best group of that stocks, it doesn't mean that's reflective of the best group of the whole market as a whole. And on you know, in addition to that, I don't know if they're holding those stocks forever or if they're rebalancing, like I said. And you know, usually when you look at back tests and people trying to prove the validity of a strategy or not, they tend to look at in the short term and look at as if you had rebalanced portfolios and things of that nature. So while the dogs of the Dow was popular, I'm sure it, it had higher returns. But if you keep selling like that year after year after year, you're not going to outperform a strategy like very long-term buy and hold. It's just not going to. I think those are a couple of reasons why that might not be the most optimal strategy. Another strategy, which isn't so much of a strategy as it is a mindset, it's referred to as the greater fool theory, which you you see this a lot in growth investors, the guys who will talk about the Netflixes, the Facebooks, the Amazons of the world. They will see, they don't even have to see earnings growth. They just want to see revenue growth, sales growth. They see really high sales growth and they'll pay, you know, they'll, they'll empty their pockets out for however expensive the stock is regardless of how much and it works for a lot of them for a while because as the stock gets popular as the bull market continues there are other people who want to join in on the party so they empty their pocket and it continues to escalate until the stock crashes and so that's the problem with growth stocks is they will crash at such a higher percentage than a value stock when there is a bear market that it really cripples investors. Any sorts of spectacular gains they saw are instantly negated and even reduced at such a higher level than someone who is more prudent, someone who is more careful, someone who looked after how much they were really spending on a stock. And so the whole thing with the greater fool is, well, I can buy a stock and it's fine. I'll be able to sell it later because there's going to be a greater fool who's going to buy it at an even more expensive price, continues and continues and continues. The funny thing is nobody can time the market. And so there's always a big group of investors who pay the very expensive prices on stocks that are left, quote unquote, holding the bag. And they're the one who who brunt the big majority of losses that you see when the stock market crashes. It's really tragic. And, and for a stock to really crash that high, that, I'm sorry, for a stock to really crash at that high of an extent and and don't take my word for it look back at 2008 2009 look back at 2000 2001 look at the stocks that really not only you know took over the headlines but evaporated millions and billions of dollars of worth over a very short time period look at those and you'll start to see a trend and that trend is that these were all stocks that were growing if not earnings wise they were definitely growing maybe if not even sales wise they're definitely growing at least in price and people were buying them at very high valuation so when you have a stock that falls at such a high extent the definition of that is that a big big majority of investors are going to lose almost everything and the more investors that are losing though compare that to a stock that might have been trading at a lower pe or price to book yeah okay maybe it dropped 25, 30, 35%. But if you really look at the numbers and if you can understand the mathematics behind a loss, losing 25% compared to losing 80%, 90%, that's the difference between, I mean, keeping your returns close to the market and then being able to beat it later on and having the types of returns that would make a banker who invests in CDs and they would just do because you're not even inflation, things of nature. So really... While you may be able to get away with going the route of trend following, maybe you can get away with momentum. You can do an indexing thing, which we copy, you know, we cover that extensively with the efficient market hypothesis. So you can do growth. You, you can you can really do any of those things. You can do dogs of the Dow. But what you can't do is become a fool or you can't jump into a strategy that you don't know too much about. And you can't jump into a strategy where you don't understand, number one, what the end game is, and number one, what your greatest risk is. Because if you don't understand what the greatest risk is, and if you're not making plans to actively avoid being exposed to that risk, 
then you're going to be the first person to go south. You're going to be caught unaware because you're not prepared. You don't go camping having all materials and supplies, having game plans, a knife, and a bear comes to get you, and having a map just to get lost. It's all these types of mental preparations for the worst, but then people will jump into the stock market with their life savings and not even have a clue about what could possibly go wrong. And so that's the most important thing. I think it's a great question to really let's expand our knowledge. Let's see how everything's out there. I really think beginners should dip their feet into all of these little things and get exposed. But at the end of the day, the purpose of that is to gain the experience to understand when you have a good strategy like value investing that you can commit to it, really see it for the long term and understand how to use its strengths and its weaknesses. As a finance nerd, you would assume that I have my money game all together. Well, shocker, I didn't. Until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all of your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product. They release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I think that was a that was a really good overview. Definitely got some other things to look into because um, I'm sure each of these kind of have some merits to it. Um, and it seems like you guys have taken some merits of the other strategies and incorporated them into your overall strategies too. Uh, so my next question is: Value investing a good strategy uh, for let's say short to medium term investments? Um, let's say holding a position for like two months to maybe like a year and a half in that sort of time frame. Looking at, at your portfolio, Andrew, um, I've noticed that you know some you've sold stocks for big gains within a year or so. Um, is that typical? Uh, I mean, define typical, right? It really depends on the market, and every single stock is going to be different. I've been fortunate in that when I started the e-letter, ever since then we've had a, a bull market and things have been going great. So juxtapose this. On another time period where maybe if we hit a bear market in the next 10 years and that same could be the exact same strategy, it could be the exact same mindset and you could see, okay, three, four, five losses this time. The important aspect of that is limiting those losses and maximizing our gains. So I 
that's a big reason why smarter investors, pr- more prudent investors, wiser investors do not look at the short and medium term as a good holding period. Personally, I don't like to brag about the positions where I've really gained a lot, like you said, in a short amount of time, because I know it's not a reliable thing. It's something, obviously, we take the profits and we're happy about it, but let's have a long-term mindset and understand it's nice to get these little bonuses along the way, but the real wealth is going to come from those positions that, like I said, are the buy and hold, the dividend fortresses, the ones that we're keeping for decades and just letting it naturally compound, let profits naturally compound to grow the business naturally, to grow our dividends and grow our share of that investment. So, I mean, it can be a good strategy, um, just as anything else could be a good strategy. I think overall, I hesitate to say that, you know, if, if you're looking to, let's say, hypothetically make as much money as you could in six months, I don't think volume is the best for just <laughs> Basically, hooking yourself to one of those growth stocks where you're trying to play the greater fool and just praying that you're not the one holding the bag, I think that's better for a long term. Obviously, it's much more, I mean, I'm sorry, for a short term, obviously, it's much more of a gamble. And, you know, there's other value investors out there who agree with me. Whitney Tilson has a book called The Art of Value Investing. They've interviewed a lot of different managers, and I can't remember the specific one, but they were saying they don't look at evaluating the success or failure of their investment until what was it three to five years maybe even so i guess everybody's definition of long-term investing different i really struggle with trying to say that like to answer this question is might draw somebody away towards like the bigger picture i guess um you know you don't want to be too short-term focused because obviously you get the short-term capital gains that are assessed with that. But say you're in an e-letter position like mine, where I have the Roth IRA that, are, that is buying those. And so the Roth IRA means you don't get capital gains. There's still other disadvantages to that. I mean, for one, you could buy a stock. And I, I know Dave's talked about GameStop, where, I mean, we'll see how it pans out. But if you compare that to a stock like Corning, where if you would have bought when Dave was looking to buy and then waited, let's say, six months and then you looked and, wow, the stock hasn't moved at all, you might be thinking, okay, that was a bad investment. But you fast forward like three, four years and all of a sudden, wow, the stock's more than doubled. So th- there's just no way the time – I mean, just even think about the whole concept of six to eight months, a business cycle and the way the financials work and the way they report quarterly earnings and the way that – sales cycle and the economy works i mean six months to nine months is, that's nothing it's not even a full retail cycle if, if you're talking about stores who are you know, trying to sell clothes and brand electronics it's just really not so be cautious as as a beginner of getting caught up with how can i make money quick because just as you have scam artists out there who tell you you can flip homes it's the same type of people who are telling you maybe you can really double your money in in a couple months by buying these investments. It's it's something to be wary of. And there's no proof that value investing will be better than something else in the short term. The studies have really shown that it's over the longer terms that that's outperform. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you're buying for the long term. Um, and if you get short term gains, so much the better. But that's not the end goal. Uh, the end goal is to have long term wealth. I mean, yeah, you you could have said that and saved me like 10 minutes. Yeah, I guess. But but maybe I couldn't have come to that conclusion without your explanation. (laughs) That's okay. You don't need to butter me up. (laughs) I don't take myself seriously. Don't worry. (laughs) So in a previous episode, um, you mentioned that you pretty much only buy dividend paying stocks. But would you say that um, you're missing out on other stocks that otherwise have like great numbers, um, great PDE, good price to sales, price to book, and like they have a good outlook? Would you say that you're missing out on stocks like that? Would it prevent you from from buying a stock that otherwise looks good? Or is it just one metric that you consider um, with a lot of other metrics? Yes, absolutely. I'm definitely missing it. But I don't think that's a bad thing. So again, we talk about margin of safety and how we like the safety it's it's maybe a little bit of a lower risk in the sense that you're getting a dividend no matter what. And I just like the idea of getting paid. So 
again, you're always going to get the downside where, like you mentioned, high flyers, but you also miss out on... So, so let me present it like this uh, <coughs> in the simplest way I can possibly try. So you have two strategies, right? There's always going to be winners. There's always going to be losers for either. So let's compare the winners and losers for non-dividends and dividends. The winners for non-dividends might go high, but the losers for non-dividends, you're losing now for buying only dividends. The winners you might not get, but the losers, you know, depending on how you're doing it, if you're doing a trailing stop, yeah, you're losing. But if you're doing like a buy and hold type thing, then even throughout the losing, if you're continuing to hold, you're continuing to accumulate. And so if you remember the, the biggest premise of a buy and hold investor holding on through that roller coaster, you only get hurt if you jump out. Assuming that you don't buy stocks that go bankrupt, you can hold a stock and assuming you, you bought it at a reasonable price to say that maybe one day it will be at a higher price, then you're in a position where you're giving yourself, you're maximizing that time where a stock can rebound and essentially recover from nasty time period. And what's nice about dividend payments is during those nasty time periods, it's not time wasted. It's time getting paid a dividend and collecting that. And it's also a good indication of when a business is really, really struggling because the, the, the businesses and the stocks that pay dividends, once they start to make that a part of who they are, management is really, really pressured to keep that dividend going because suddenly a lot uh, a bigger part of their investment community, I guess you would say, or the, the people that are putting money into their business by buying shares are going to be dividend-focused people. And they're not going to be the, the greater fool crowd that we talked about earlier. It, it's, a, it's a different group of people. And so there's a lot of pressure to keep that dividend going over time. And you know, it, if management has to pull the cord and just say, look, we can't pay a dividend. This that that means something seriously is is wrong, and it's a nice red flag to be like, okay, you know, cut my losses. You can't win them all. Um, but for the stocks that are good for the long term, the ones that will eventually either return to what they're really price, what they really should be priced on, or just continue to grow in a nice long term trend, we're gonna collect dividends all all along the way. We're gonna reinvest those dividends. We're gonna have a higher ownership percentage of these stocks. And over the very long term, it's going to compound fantastic. And so, yeah, I mean, you might miss out on, you know, maybe buying the next Apple or buying the next Amazon. But, I mean, you, you're missing out by not buying a lottery ticket right now, aren't we all? It's, it's just picking which risks you want to take and playing the probability game, understanding that the, the chances are better when you have the right strategy. And you have to have the right mindset, too. you got to be able to hang on and have conviction and power through tough times but understanding that is why i'm able to only buy dividend paying stocks why i'm able to well you know i've been lucky to not see it yet as far as my dividend fortresses have gone but to to be able to look at a loss on a dividend fortress and there's this isn't a two month i mean this isn't like a two-year game or even a four-year game a 12-year game a 15 and be okay with losses as long as no big red flags within the company are popping so that's really a big reason why and i know it's very anti-value investing in a sense, and it's it's really looked down on in the investment community as a whole. But that's why I have so much belief in it is because of these type of things. And I think to to add on to that, the you have to think about the mindset of what you're doing when you're investing. You know, I'm investing for retirement, and I want to have income while I'm in retirement. And dividend-paying stocks are going to be giving you income during that time period. And if you're buying a company that is not paying a dividend, the only way that you can recoup that money is to sell that company. And that's that starts to get into the scary realm of what if the market is down during that time period. Now, maybe, A, you have a shorter window to recoup that money, like Andrew was talking about with the time horizon. You know, you're not generating any income from that company, but... You also have, you know, let's say you're 75 years old now and you want to turn around and sell Facebook or Netflix or whichever company that may be that maybe is not paying a, a dividend at that point. If they're not paying you that dividend and you need to recoup that and now the stock, you know, to say the market goes through a 2008, 2009 crash while you're in retirement, you're you're screwed because you're not going to get any income from that company because the only way you can recoup that income is to sell that stock and if it's down 72 percent you're out of luck and you know if you're if you're with a company that's paying you a dividend then you're still going to be getting income from that company 
and it's still going to be growing that you know growing shares of that company and increasing your wealth and helping you through that time period. So to me, that's where dividends are really the you know the 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 plus side of the equation for me. Yes, they're maybe not as high flyers or not exciting. Typically, dividend companies are boring. But you know what? That's what investing is all about is finding great companies that are going to pay you income over the life of the investment. And frankly, the best companies to invest in most of the time are boring, are boring companies. Tesla is not exciting or I mean, is not boring, but it's also maybe not the best investment. And so, you know, that's that and Amazon are two of my little whipping boys, but you know, for a, an investor, that's, that's just, you know, I, I may upset millennials by talking about negatively about that, but when I look at their earnings reports and when I look at their financials, I just wonder to myself, why are people investing in this company? Because it's not going to pay them anything. And, you know, the only way they're going to recoup this money is by selling it. You know, I, I read the other day that Tesla is now the largest market cap in the auto industry in the United States. And I was flabbergasted by that. And it's just, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, getting back on, on focus here, that's where dividends to me are going to be a benefit is they're going to help me pay income when I'm in retirement. Whereas a company that does not pay a dividend, I don't have that, that option. That's really my thought. Hey, you. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Yeah, I think that make a, makes a lot of sense. So kind of what you're saying is that not only does it do dividends amount to um, income in the long term, but they also kind of like hedge your bet against the value of that stock, whether it goes up or down, you're getting those, inc- or those dividend payments. Yes. Yep. That's exactly right. So typically when I look at a stock, um, you know, the first thing that comes up whenever you look up a stock on Google Finance is is the trend line. And, you know, I tend to look at the trend line, look at it over the past couple months, past couple of years, just kind of look if it's a steady uphill or if there's been some some hills and drops up, drop offs there. Um, what do you guys look at? What do you look for when you're looking into a stock and you're looking at its trend line? I never look at the trend line. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I really don't. I mean, I will on occasion glance at it just for giggles to see, you know, about something. But as far as my analysis of the company has no bearing on it whatsoever. For me, it's all about what the numbers are telling me about the company. To me, the trend line is based on the price of the company. And Andrew and I have talked about this in the past, you know, Value investors are looking for an intrinsic value. So we're looking what we think the company is worth, not what the stock market is saying the price is worth. So if a company, you know, if if Wall Street says that a company is priced at $50, that doesn't always mean that that's what it's worth. I mean, let's put this in an analogy. When When you go buy a car and you walk onto that lot, you have a pretty good idea of what you think that car is worth most of the time. And so when you go to negotiate with the car dealership about what you think that price is, you can go to that, you know, that's why people car shop is because you can go to different dealerships looking for car A and there's going to be different prices around town. And because different, you know, dealerships are going to have different prices put on that car because they think they can get more for it than what it's worth. And so when you go to buy it, you think it's worth 20000 but the dealership across the street is selling for 28 but the guy next door to you is selling it for 22 Well, you're going to buy it for the 22 because it's closer to the 20 that you think it's worth. And it's kind of the same, you know, analogy applies to stocks. When you go to look at and, you know, buy a company, I don't necessarily care. The only reason I care about the price is in relation to what I think it's worth. And so if I think it's worth $35, but Wall Street's selling it for $50, i am out. I'm not buying it. It's just, it's too expensive for me. I want it less than what I, you know, if it's, yeah, I want it less than 35 bucks. If I can buy it for 25 bucks, I'll wait until I can see it at that, or I'll move on to something else that I think would be a better fit at that time. I may put it on a watch list and keep an eye on it because I think it's a great company and it's overpriced, but at some point it may come down. You know, the thing with the price in the stock market is it's really kind of based on, there's, there's so many other factors that drive what that $50 is coming from. And it doesn't always have to do with what it's actually worth. And so I think that to me, when I'm looking at a trend line, that falls more into 
you know, the trend following and the momentum following that we were talking about earlier. When I'm looking as a value investor, when I'm looking at a company and I'm interested in buying, I'm more interested in finding what the intrinsic value is and finding out what I think it's worth and then basing that on what the, what Wall Street's selling it for. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just full in agreement as well. I mean, if I, if I see a trend line and, and it's positive, it's kind of like a cherry on top. Makes me feel a little bit better about buying, but it's not something that I'm going to put really any heavy weight towards. I I, I do lean a little bit in that I don't agree with Malkiel that momentum's complete bogus. I think there is some things to momentum just from the emotional and human side of the market being that people can get excited over things just as they can get very fearful of things. And so I do think there is a factor, but if I see a stock that has a really bad trend line, if I can understand that it's maybe due to some unfounded fears and it's not because you get of earnings or really bad long-term growth, you know, really long-term growth or, you know, little hiccups and not big flaws of a business model, then I'm going to ignore a negative trend line. In the same way, a positive trend line is nice, but it's not something that's going to really make me go towards a buy and Okay, that's really good. I was I was really curious about how much how much weight I should be should be be putting into the trend line of a stock. So I noticed um, on Trade King, there's a lot of different that seems to be kind of a lot of advanced buying options like uh, limit orders, stop orders, and stop limit orders. And I kind of read through how they apply to buying and selling, but I was still kind of confused. Is it worth looking into um, those more advanced buying and selling options? I like to say no. So there's a way to like, if you're doing a trailing stop, you can enter it into the broker and you can do like a stop limit. I don't like that because you're putting all the power on the broker and they can they can basically execute a trade. It could be unfavorable to you and you, you have no recourse. So I'm talking about like an extreme case, like a flash crash where we've seen a stock drop substantially in one day and then it came back up. There was like some algorithm glitch. If, if you're trailing using a trailing stop for the long term, that would have triggered your trailing stop. I like to only trigger trailing stops at the closing price because exactly because of that, which I think the trend of having this type of technology, this type of glitches happen can only from here to go the other way and disappear. So number one, it could trigger something where you didn't to. Number two, of course, whenever you buy a stock, it's not going to be exactly the price you, the way that Wall Street works and the way that the trading for people, there are large units moving back and forth and what what you really pay compared to what the price is at currently compared to what the price closes at. It, it's all very, it, it, there's variations there. It's minimal, but again, if, if you're doing like a limit or a stop, you, you don't have much control over really quick short-term swing. That could be really problem. And I'm right there with him. I'm, I'm, I'm old school too. I just, I, I go buy in a sell this, the uh, trailing stops I do manually. So I do those, you know, with a spreadsheet and I have alerts through Yahoo finance that tells me when the stock is, you know, getting to that limit that I set. And that's, that's how I do it. You know, I have, I have so many other things that I need to worry about in my investing that some of the advanced buying and selling options, I just, that's, that's too high math for me. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. So it's more like in your control rather than being in the broker's control. Yes. Yeah. Kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I signed up for my trade King account a couple weeks ago. Um, just wanted to let everybody know that um, while I was signing up for my account, um, there was a coupon code option. So naturally, I went to uh, Retail Me Not and found a coupon code for Trade King, and ended up getting like the first $500 in commissions um, off. And that offer was good for like two months. So that was good to know that you know some of the trades that I make, you know, buying stock upfront. That you know, if I make a bad decision, I need to trade out. I don't necessarily have to pay those fees right away. Um, so yeah, it's always good to check uh, retail me out whenever you see a coupon code box. But uh, so they announced recently that they're transitioning over to Ally, Ally, however that's pronounced. Ally, um, yep. Yeah, Ally. <laughs> um, so they they recently announced that they'll be tra- transitioning over to kind of their platform. Um, do you guys have any concerns about that? I don't. As somebody who works in the banking industry, this is a common thing that's going on right now. 
all the banks are aligning because investing has become such a huge, I mean, the market is over 20,000 now, you know, 10 years ago it was 10. So it's doubled. And what a lot of the banks are doing is they're realizing that, you know, the interest rates, because they're so low, the money is in the investment part of their bank. And so the bank that I work for, they bought a very large bank solely for the reason because they had a huge investment portfolio. And so they were able to mold that into with uh, with the bank that I work for, and they were able to use that to help increase their revenue. And, you know, if you look at that in the last five years or so, there's been a lot of mergers like this. Bank of America has merged with um, J.P. Morgan. Uh, who else was uh, um, Bremer? merged with somebody else. I think it was TD Ameritrade. Ameriprise has, has merged with somebody as well. Uh, Trade King merging with Ally. This is just Ally's way of trying to gather a, an investment arm to their bank and ma- make them, quote unquote, a legitimate bank. And this is another way for them to generate revenue. So I, in, in from my experience with the bank that I work for, the only changes that were made to the investment part of it were for the better. Uh, the technology was much better, and the you know customer service became much better. There were just a lot of advantages to that with that, and I my anticipation is is that it'll be the same with Ally. Yeah, I think they mentioned that they didn't have any plans on changing the fee rate or anything to that effect. So I thought that was no. Good. And as a matter of fact, you know, I, I mentioned this to Andrew a, a couple weeks ago. There are some of the other bigger trade companies now. Our brokerage houses have lowered their trading fees. There's been a there's been a very big backlash against fees, for good reason. And the so Fidelity and I, uh, there was another one have lowered theirs to four ninety five as well. So some of the other bigger houses are starting outing. You know, Trade King has been undercutting them for years, and they're starting to you know, try to compete with them. So they're lowering their prices. So I, I don't anticipate them raising them at all. Okay. That's, that's good. To, good to know that I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my last question is kind of anecdotal actually, but um, you know, I kind of saw the movie, the big short, which I thought, uh, you know, after I learned about the concept of shorting stocks, I thought that was a really interesting concept. Um, although it doesn't, I mean, it seems risky in, I guess the same way as, Investing in general can be risky. Um, just wondering what your guys' thoughts on shorting stocks uh, are. Ooh, you're opening a can of worms. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, not gonna I mean, go there. One of, <laughs> yeah, one of one of these episodes. This is something Dave and I can cover extensively. I'll just answer in in the simplest way. It sounds like a great idea. The problem is the market can be. This is a quote, and I can't remember who it's from. The market can be irrational longer than you can be solvent. So things can stay overvalued for years, and we've seen that already, seen it in the past. So you can really short a stock, and the mania of the market will completely destroy you. And there's things like margin calls where as you lose money, as you're shorting, you're going to have to come up with more capital just to trade alive and can really go backwards against you. You're, you're investing with margin, That's the scary. risk That's that so you're scary. now adding. Yeah. Uh, it gives me goosebumps that, I mean, just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> that plus the whole idea that when you're buying and when you're investing, time is on your shorting, time is against your side. The company pays dividends. You're going to have to pay those dividends. So it's it's really, it sounds nice because it's like, all right, we can see that the markets, we are the smart guys there, the stupid guy. Well, let's just fix it. But there's things like short squeezes, margin calls, these type of things that really, really can knock you out and try to just avoid that risk. And goes back to, yeah, you might miss out on some great deals, but. And I'll echo, you know, what Andrew was saying too. I know I made a few comments while he was talking, but you know, to me, shorting is a scary, scary thing. And you know, I, I just, I, it's just not an avenue I really go down. You know, you, you mentioned the big short, which I, I love the movie. I thought it was a great movie, but if you notice during, the times when Christian Bale's character, um, I'm going to blank on the, the customer. The, Michael Burry. Thank you, Michael Burry. <laughs> when Michael Burry is going to those other banks to try to you know, raise capital to do the shorts for the banks, you know, remember 
uh, the looks that he was getting from these people. You know, they thought he was a joke. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was nuts. And, you know, they were also, you know, you saw the greed in them because one of the, you know, things that a lot of people don't know about shorting is you have to pay interest on that money that you're borrowing to short the stock. And so that's what he was talking about throughout the course of the movie was how much it was costing him every month and every quarter. It was just staggering the amount of money he was paying to these banks. And that's why they were willing to do it was because they could, you know, they're greedy, you know, and there was just so many aspects of the greed that that movie displayed in the banking industry. And there are a lot of things that are still going on that a lot of people aren't talking about, but the, uh, you know, to me, that's where shorting is just, you know, you know, Andrew mentioned the greater fool theory. And to me, it's, it's such a, it's such an, a, a risky, risky play because if the stock goes up, you're screwed. You know, if it, if it goes down, yeah, you may win, but if it goes up, you're, you're, you're in a, world of hurt and you know the one of the more famous shorts recently is bill ackman's short of herbalife and there's all kinds of wars going on about that and they even made a uh, documentary about it that came out recently i haven't been able to see it yet but you know he talks you know they talk extensively just about that one particular short and you know it's a very famous one and it hasn't come to fruition yet but you know he's paying a lot of money to the bank that's covering him for that but I yeah that's just that's scary stuff and I think for somebody who's been doing this for two weeks I think I think that might be <laughs> something you might want to hold off on just a little bit yet <laughs> yeah that's that's about the impression that I got from it was yeah it's a cool concept but there's a lot of downsides to it um, yeah and yeah you guys mentioned some some things that I hadn't even considered in either which makes it look yeah extra extra risky <laughs> yeah so, I mean, yeah. You think about somebody like Michael Burry, who was a brilliant, brilliant man, and you know the effort that it took for him to do something like what he did was just staggering. And you know, so for some peon like me to try to short, you know, Amazon or whoever, <laughs> it's like, yeah, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, that's uh, that's all the questions that I have for you guys today. Okay, all right. Well, great. Well. Ellen, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. It was a lot of fun. You asked some really good questions. You know, for only two weeks, man, that was uh, that was pretty impressive stuff. So uh, yeah. you did good. Well, it's thanks, uh, it's thanks to you guys and um, and uh, the information that you've given me so far. So I really appreciate it. Well, it's our pleasure. We're glad we're glad we're able to do this for you. That's why we're here is to to help and to listen to Andrew word vomit all over yeah. the place. <laughs> Hope you guys brought something to clean up. <laughs> we certainly did. We'll, we'll be back. We'll be back next week. Yeah, we will. Yeah. Don't forget to wipe off your headphones after this episode. Yeah. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, that's going to do it for us tonight. We really appreciate Alan taking the time to talk to us today. He. Obviously, asked some great questions. He's only been doing this for two weeks, and that was really impressive. Uh, I was very, uh, yeah, was, that was great. It was a lot of fun. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We, uh, we will see you guys next week, and you guys have a great week. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.